Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of The Comics Comic, found wherever you can type The Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Guy Branham's debut comedy album, Effable, came out in 2015. Branham himself has been out for years now, whether he was playing staff homosexual on Chelsea Lately or serving up No Mr. Nice Gay segments on Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. You've also seen him on NBC's Last Comic Standing, and his writing credits include Punked, Billy on the Street, and Ease Fashion Please for Joan Rivers. Vulture named him one of 50 comedians you should know in 2015, but now that it's 2016, here's what you really should know about him, including how Guy got from Yuba City to law school to a life in comedy. So let's get to it! So, Guy Branham, welcome to Last Things First, which is the name of my show. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. No, thank you for the iced coffee. I do what I can. We're here in Los Feliz. Los Feliz, the Feliz? traditional comedian neighborhood of Los Angeles. This is where I lived for a long time, and it's where you run into comedians almost constantly. Yeah. Inside the cafe, we ran into uh, uh, Jake from uh, the Comedy Bureau. Yes. Because, uh, you know, we'll probably run, uh, see a couple more comedians before we go. So if the Comedy Bureau is the hub for finding out about L.A. shows, Los Feliz must be the hub for It is. Everything. I mean, this is where comedians live. There are more shows. The shows are driving further and further east. As um, as young white professionals displace Latino families, mm. um, and gentrification. Gentrification. There's a show going on tonight called Gentrification, in Glassell Park. I want to say, not ironic. It's ironic. It's ironic, but like pointless irony because it is gentrification. Right. So it's not like ooh. I mean, it's I'm a naughty little boy. <laughs> so uh, last things first. This is we're in the peak awards season. Yes. Now that you're, once you close the chapter on Fashion Police, do you stop caring about the red carpets or... No, or never. No. no, never. Sometimes I always want to get the bands back together mm-hmm. and get, like, Eliza Skinner and Brian Cook to do something or, like, shoot a little video where we just talk shit about the outfits and they're like, oh, God, I never want to have to do that again. Um, but I miss it a lot. It is one of those things... The hardest thing is when you love something and can't love it anymore. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I'm, there are some public figures that I think a lot of people feel that way about. And for me, Fashion Police is really hard because it is a format and an institution that I love very much. And I'm so happy that Margaret, uh, I think she's a good fit for it. But the fact that they continue to be a non-union shop and refuse to, because there was a time when that really was a home for some of the best jokes on TV and also a home for some of the best writers who were not getting respected by Hollywood and the industry. Mm -hmm. Like it was, it's women and gay guys. And most of us now have other better jobs, you know, Um, like Jackie Clark works on grandfather or no, she works on superstore. Eliza writes for the late, late show. You know, everybody's got other better, nice union jobs, but I just wish, could respect that show enough to say, hey, 
have five union writers writing kick-ass killer mean mean jokes because they, they're like that was the traditional space for female-centric roasty jokes right you know uh and that's something i love do you think uh it's a matter of you and the writers who were who are on strike leaving for better jobs that it's not getting attention anymore or is it the fact that it's a show for women and gay guys or is it because it's e that like I, people don't care that it's a n going against the union yeah i mean there just came a point in time when or because joan died i mean it, joan dying did sort of like change the conversation significantly um I, I think the wga probably just realized they're never going to fix that and there is something to be said for jobs that aren't union that people can get at the beginning of their career. That is a valuable thing. God knows I have had many jobs. Uh, you know, uh, Those jobs that, that you get at the start that prove, right. prove what you can do are valuable. Uh, I just feel like Fashion Police is a big enough show and enough of an institution, and also one of the highest rated shows on that network, um, that it, it can handle paying some real writers. What was the first job you took in the business? Oh, my first job was as a web writer for like what was then tech TV. So that was my first writing for a television network job. From then, uh, from there I worked on a couple of shows for tech TV, which became G4. Which became Esquire. No. Yes, which became Esquire. And none of those were union because mm -hmm. like um, small bullshit cable like that can't afford union writers. When you were a kid in Yuba City. Yuba City, yes. Uh, was writing for television and being on television already the dream for you? Or what was the dream for you then as a kid? Well, the thing is, is like I told my mom I wanted to be a writer, and she was like, no, you don't. <laughs> and so that kind of affected it, and I was like, all right, I don't. Was it the tone that you said it that made her think no? or uh, I, She was just like, no, writers don't make money. He needs to go into something stable. Mm -hmm. um, my parents didn't tell me that. <laughs> yeah. And now look at me. <laughs> Um, but the thing is, is like they're basing, uh, they based all of their opinion on what the economy looked like in 1990, not okay. on what it looks like now. Right. You know, so neither of our parents could have known what a, who, what a stable career looked like. Who would have known that being a content producer is better than having a law degree? Um, right. The World Wide Web wasn't even a thing in 1990. <laughs> right. Um, so, but I, I remember in college being like, if I could just make a living from being interesting in some way, okay. that would be fine. And then I got that first job at G4 and was like, all right, I'm done. I have it. Like right. I can pay my rent and be happy and afford sushi sometimes just off of kind of making jokes. Um, what more could I want? And it was sort of hard from there to reevaluate and, and kind of hope for more. But in between those two things, in between college and tech tv you went to law school i did i went to so law school was the interesting part of that being in front of a jury or what was the interesting thing about well, the law to you then? i mean that was essentially just my mom told me to <laughs> my mom told me to go to okay. grad like i was like i think i just want to get a job out of college mm -hmm. and she was like no you will go to graduate school now okay so um and i was like well they they take standardized tests more seriously than other graduate schools, so I'll go there because so, I can get into a better school. And I, I think that uh, the reason that a lot of lawyers become comedians is that it is about being manipulative with language. And I still really do like like and respect the law and the sense of play there. Um, but I, by the time I was a year in, was like, I don't want to do this and I hate that. 
and that's when I came out of the closet. Was a year into law school. Okay. Uh, like summer after my first year of law school. Uh, and so after that, it was just the depths of depression and trying to figure out where do I go from here. And what did you do? Where did you go from there? Well, I finished law school um, I, because I didn't want to feel beaten. But then I was trying to remember, like, what's, when's the last time I was happy? Um, and th- that really, uh, like, I had written a column for my campus paper uh, and I had really enjoyed that, and I had like barely, barely done stand-up. Was it a humor column or opinion? Yeah, it was a hu- it was a humor column. Okay. And I had barely, barely done stand-up uh, second semester of my last year of college, and so I was like, um, "What made you do that when you were while you were still in college?" Oh, stand-up. Because I wanted to do it. I loved stand-up so much, and I wanted to do it, but was scared of it and thought it wasn't something that I got to do. Um, but people had like a couple of friends. My friend Lorelai Suarez. Mm-hmm. I've been like, you're so funny, you need to go do an open mic. And I was like, open mics, those are a thing. Uh, and I like went and watched, and they seemed so exciting. And th- like, the d- if you think you might want to do stand-up, go to an open mic. And if you, you, I just feel like anyone who's meant to be a stand-up by the third time will be like, let me up there. Like, these people are doing it wrong, let me up there. It'll be a visceral reaction. Right. And so I had that reaction, and I did it. And I loved it, but my my parents were very much like, "No, you can't do that. That's a waste." You, you, you were also in the closet, so you yes. were. Yes, I was. You were, you were open to a lot of pressure, peer pressure suggestions. Yeah, I mean, I was very much like, "Oh yeah, your gut instincts are wrong about everything." Mm. Um, and so I didn't do it the whole time I was in law school, um, even though there is a great scene in uh, in Minneapolis that where I went to law school. Um, Did you go to shows at Acme? Uh, you were in law school? I, I went to like one show there. Um, there is Chris Garcia. What was I saying to you about how in Los Feliz? We can uh, just hang out on the sidewalk. We can hang out on the sidewalk and run come. into comedians. Hello, Chris Garcia. Would you like to come be part of a podcast? Uh, no, thank you. <laughs> it's Friday. It's Friday. I know. I understand that. I respect that. Val, would you like to be on a podcast? I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> So, so you went to w- one or two shows at Acme? Yeah, I like went to one show at Acme, um, and I was, you know, tempted by the whole thing, but I was figuring myself out. Um, I'm always very, I always feel very sad for people who have to go through a coming out process, already being comedians, because part of being a comedian is like projecting your identity. Um, but like point of view is what I heard when I was first getting involved in comedy. Time and time again, headliners told me and club owners told me, POV. Right. What's your, what's your point of view? Like, uh, think about somebody like Riley Silverman, who has had to go through, like, a really complex process of shifting her persona on stage and the stuff that she talks about on stage. Do you know Riley? I think I saw Riley at the clubhouse yeah. the other night. Um, Transitioning, and, right? Yeah. She, uh She's a woman, right. but she was not out of the closet uh, about being a woman. Um, Initially, so uh, when when I met so her, her stand up has to change, right? And the thing is, is she's done a really flawless and impressive job of of doing it. But I feel for anybody, how do you tell jokes with certainty and POV mm-hmm. when you're still figuring that shit out yourself? And it does lead to a lot of good material. And what's interesting to me is like I was only like two years out of the closet when I started doing stand up. Um, but for me, it was such an important way of being sort of like declarative about who I was. And that's 
that's actually a lot of the stand-up since I first saw you on TV. It's very declarative. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm which, guy. Here's what I think. I don't care if you agree with me or not. Right. And the thing is, is it's as time has gone gone on, I think I have, I've tried to evolve and be a little bit more vulnerable and a little bit less of an attack dog. But that's sort of the place that I came from, and it's mm-hmm. where I understand the origin of power being. Um, but y- you know, I'm 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 trying to. To grow as a comic, like one time I did this show, Iron Comic, mm-hmm. um, with uh, with a, a bunch of people, but Kyle Kinane was in it. And my best friend, who knows me better than anyone, she watched the show, and I was just, we were talking about how relatable Kyle Kinane is, and I was essentially saying, I can never be that. And she was like, don't say that. Like, don't define yourself in that way. And also, one of the things that's changed since I started stand-up isn't just me, but like the world. And like when I was starting in 2000, God, what was it? 2002, three, I was in a world that was, I could safely assume was more hostile to my very existence uh, than is true now. And I didn't think that there was space for me to be vulnerable in that way. And so I've, I've tried to work towards that since we had that conversation. Just sort of, you know, I think an important part of being a comic who's been doing this for a while is realizing you still have space for growth. What was the next significant turning point for you? Was it Chelsea lately, or was there something before that? No, I mean, it was... So, I mean, I I got the job, and I moved here. I mean, moving here was a really hard and significant turning point. So I I got my first writing job at the beginning of 2004... For Tech... For Tech TV, TV. and then they got bought by G4. And when I moved to L.A., it was before most of my contemporaries in San Francisco had... I wasn't. I was coming as a somewhat formed and capable comic, but not somebody with any buzz behind me. And we also just didn't live in a world of social media where you were as aware of people. Sure. So I showed up as a nobody, and didn't have a fancy enough job to be able to use that to leverage for sets. And it was hard for me, and I like struggled for a time. Um, and then after that, like next big thing was managing to get the job at Chelsea lately, which really saved me and gave me exposure that I wasn't going to get otherwise and that was really valuable to me. So the the tech TV job that was enough to pay for you to live here, right? You didn't have to do other day jobs or anything like that. Right. Like uh, that was a full-time real job, the the job in at the, G4. Right, in the business. The, like the being yeah. funny. Yeah. But and it 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 is always that thing of is this enough? Like my my parents and I realize <laughs> It's like, why do you listen to these people? Solid point. But, like, they were very much like, that's your job job. This stand-up thing doesn't matter. Just focus on your job. Um, and I was like, you're stupid. Uh, but Has that stopped? Or I, I do mean, your parents still give you they, I, honestly, grief one, about being one a of the really One of the one really wonderful things that happened was after I left Chelsea lately, things were rough for a while um, because... Uh, Did you leave sh- before the show ended? or? Yeah, I left okay. before the show ended. Um, I, I left because uh, partially the advice of bad management advice because I wanted to be able to sell a show idea. Okay. Uh, and Chelsea was somewhat pissed off by me leaving um, and CAA repped both of us and they didn't want to continue to rep somebody who she didn't like. Um, mm. And so things dried up for me really hard after that and I really thought that my parents were going to give me 
a hardcore well you have to go like it's time for you to be a lawyer and the thing is, is i wouldn't have listened to them regardless but it is just that thing of feeling like you have support or some sense that people take you seriously and by that point in time i mean i got to do so many wonderful and amazing things while at chelsea lately like you know the comedians of chelsea lately co-headlines like the warfield the like big wonderful theater yeah. in san francisco full uh, national uh, theater tours yeah um just for being a panelist on <laughs> chelsea right, lately right which is crazy <laughs> um but the sign of the new comedy boom there was something nice about hitting that point in time and saying oh do i have to go do something else and being like no you'll figure this out you're far enough down this path um and that was valuable for me like learn and but that was really a moment that um made clear to me the importance of do always doing stand-up and being a sharp stand-up because while at chelsea lately i did stand up for the show and to make money <laughs> like um and like one time a very good agent offered me a chance to open for some of his other clients who were also panelists and i said no because i wasn't going to be making that much money and it was a really stupid stupid choice because i was essentially saying i'm a bigger deal than this failing to realize this is an opportunity right but after i left the show i found i kept trying to climb back up the rungs that my representatives were placing in front of me and I did not realize they didn't understand what I do and that the thing I should always have in my back pocket is a healthy stand-up career. So after a year of working through savings and um, working on a bunch of development stuff that went nowhere and then ending up having to take some shitty, shitty jobs, um, like writing for for Punked, which shouldn't be a terrible job, but is a terrible job, and also not a job I should ever do. Um, I realized, oh no, it is it is time to knuckle down and focus on rebuilding myself as a stand-up, and that was uh, and that was one of the best things that I've ever done, and it was hard. Um, to go back and learn how to get booked for a show that I couldn't get booked for ag again because I was very much used to being sort of like, I'm on TV, put me on your show. And right. in most cases, it worked, but in some cases, you don't get the response. And then having to sort of like suck up your pride, go to the show, politely wait around outside, and then uh, find out that you said something horrible to Whitmer Thomas two years beforehand and that's why he wasn't booking you. Ah, uh, grudges. Yes. It wasn't grudges. It was it was the most adorable. And Whitmer is the loveliest boy. Uh, and I, I, I love the whole thing. Where was your self-esteem and your uh, bank account at when you got the job with Totally Biased? Oh, I was back on my feet to some extent. Like, I had, by that point in time, I had had a sitcom job. Uh, and I got a recurring part on a sitcom that got canceled. So, like, t 2012 was, like, very much a rebuilding year. Um, and then, uh, but Totally Biased was a, a job of the sort I knew and loved. You know, a show where I would show up to the same place every day. We would write jokes on, that would go on the air that day. It was a place where I could get to be on camera. 
Um, and also, it was, in its way, better because I got to talk about stuff that mattered to me. Because the, the thing is, is like, God knows I love talking about celebrities and gossip and stuff. But I also, you know... You uh, a podcast for that. Yes, but I also really love politics and things. And the, mm-hmm. the thing is, is before Totally Biased, for a lot of that year, it had been a time when I was having to run three hustles at once. So, like, when I was um, writing for Punked, I was also writing for Fashion Police and doing a web series of my own. Um, and those together kind of made an income for me. Um, and then doing live shows. Right, and then doing live shows. Um, but... There's something valuable to like listen like uh uh Kathy uh what's her name? Kathy Griffin. Kathy, Kathy Griffin's <laughs> Kathy Griffin's uh WTF is mm-hmm. a wonderful thing for any comedian to listen to because she talks about hard times. She talks about when shit stopped working and about just going and like <laughs> digging in and focusing on stand up and how and how she managed to pull herself out first with uh, her show Hot Cup of Talk, and then with the weekly show she did at the Laugh Factory. Um, and I think that 2012 <laughs> taught me a lot of good lessons about being able to run these hustles at the same time mm-hmm. and be getting up and keep all of them straight and always be working for the next job. Now, you know, cut to present day, the last time I saw you on stage was at San Francisco Sketchfest, uh-huh. Iron Comic, and I was telling you... Uh, before we started talking on the microphones, that I was struck by how you were the one comic who you really saw the hustle <laughs> because Iron Comic has strict rules about writing jokes on the spot, and you were the one of the five all-star comedians, five or six, who were, who had a sheet of paper with jokes that were freshly, freshly that's, written. That's so sweet. Amy Miller was writing some great jokes, too, and the other folks who were there are comedy icons, and neither right. Amy nor I know, or are that. So you understand that you have to be proving yourself the whole time. If I'm in front of an audience of 500 people like that, I want them to leave thinking that they like me. You know? I mean, that's why we do this. You get up in front of people so that there's the possibility of turning somebody into a fan who will buy my album or something like that. But it's also just the thing of um, being a writer. And, like, when you're presented with a creative challenge, you can try to twist or turn in some way to avoid that challenge or you can just run headlong into the challenge and be like, uh, this will be some work, but at the end of it, I'll have some stuff. And there are many friends who I really respect who don't like doing shows like that because they, they think to themselves, oh, I could just be working on long-term material. I could be working on something that I can use forever. And I know that I can have the best of intentions of doing that and mm-hmm. not do that. So I just need to keep running headlong into these challenges that are created for me so that I can try to figure out something that, that does really work. Like doing Iron Comic one time before, I was able to sort of like crystallize a bit that um, I had been thinking about before but never really had the the impetus to make work for me. I just think, and also, I am a TV writer. Um, That's, that was the one, that was the other very basic impression I got on watching that show. I was like, Guy Branham better be writing for a TV show because <laughs> that was like, yeah, I, that I was mean, a great resume for being able to turn out jokes for any sort of late night show or thank you that's so kind and the thing is is i have worked most of my career in late nighty stuff where being able to turn out jokes really matters and i like it right now i am on a scripted show which is working other skills and that's exciting and fun but there are still those times when you just have to punch up one spot in the script 
and you can say your best idea and the head writer doesn't like it and you can say four more ideas and the head writer doesn't like it and there you always have the option of just being quiet and really hoping that one of your one of your coworkers will be the person who can get it mm-hmm. but like you just need to keep being able to make new jokes come out of you or find different twists on the joke find a different way of approaching it um, i I love doing that. I think it is such a specific skill set, and I'm proud of it sometimes. Like, I was talking to Emily Heller, and I was like, would you ever want a job in late night? She was like, why would I do that? I have a sitcom job. I make more money. It is easier, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, yes, Emily, but you could. Like, the thing is, is, like, Emily is such a fucking good joke writer, and I always just have the attitude of anyone who could write for a late night show should because that is a difficult skill set and one that should be should be used or else people you know I worry about people losing it if they don't use it right but Emily will never lose it because she's fucking awesome and also I guess just hearing that story gives me the fear that maybe that's what keeps the uh, white male privilege machine going is, how do you mean is, is other people are like well I could be doing this but I'll just do this easier thing uh, because I look at late night and it's all yeah because there there are a lot of things that are why, why fight the system when I can do this easier thing that's cushy? Yes. Uh, like, late night is less collaborative than scripted shows are. And I think that that is one of the reasons that you see, um, like, women going into scripted shows more. Um, but I also think, like, a lot of people in those jobs are dickbags who know that they are only barely holding on to those jobs Mm -hmm. and try to be judgmental or or try to take advantage of any opportunity they have to alienate somebody who may not be um, like the the crew who's already in there. Um, And on every job that I've had, like just the simple thing of, I like to laugh and laughing at other people's jokes in the room is the most fun because it means you get to go into your job every day and just be delighted by your friends. Um, but also, sometimes I will I will go to places and there will be this dominant sensibility of judgment, mm-hmm. of not being supportive of each other. And that's hard. And in a world that has already told you because you're a woman or a person of color or a homosexual that like you probably shouldn't be here, this isn't for you, you're not good at this, um, that kind of environment can exacerbate that. And I understand that a lot of people are not as contrarian as I am because I always want to show, no, I can fucking do this. And I, th- I think that you need that. But also another way, of <laughs> another way of working on it is to be supportive of people. Here's the thing. Um, when... Uh, there was a, a Comedy Central show that had very, very harsh roasty jokes on it. Mm-hmm. And I asked them if they I had... I think of two of those right. recently. Um, I asked one of the writers if they had any female comics, mm-hmm. or female writers, and he was like, no. We tried to find, we tried to find people and we couldn't. Like, um, they, they, managers sent in a bunch of, um, of writing samples from women and none of them just really stacked up. And I was like, you're looking in the wrong place. You, like, if you had gone to... Like, nobody was looking at Fashion Police because Fashion Police was below anyone's regard. But if it had crossed anybody's mind to get a packet from Eliza Skinner, that would have been a different situation. Right. You know, if it had crossed anybody's mind to get a packet from Vanessa Ramos, it would have been a different situation. Um, and I just think that it is easy for people 
to not notice these skill sets in people that they don't want to see them from. So what's the one thing you want to do that people aren't seeing out of you? Oh, um, that's weird. I was just being whining to myself about one of those. It, there's the funny thing of I know I since leaving Chelsea lately, I, ha I haven't really gotten booked for gay things like mm -hmm. gay activities or like I, I, <laughs> I never do the stupid cruises. I like I just don't get that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, there is something really weird and strange about the parallel existence of the gay comedy circuit and the mainstream comedy mm -hmm. circuit. Um, and that's kind of annoying. And then the thing of, um, like, on-camera stuff, I think I've proved to people that I can panel. Um, but, like, acting stuff hasn't happened that much. And I'm fine with it uh, because it is better to write stuff and better to perform your own stuff. Um, but I also think it would be fun and good to do that. Or no, I will step back even from that. I would like to get a half hour this year. Comedy Central has never let me do stand-up on um, on their fine network. And I would like well, to do that. I mean, you tell jokes at, at midnight. Right. But, but that's not your That's a little bit material. different. Right. Uh, I, I just never like, I never got to do one of the showcase shows. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I would like to get a half hour this year very much. All right. I'll put, I'll put a word in for you. I'm sorry I said three <laughs> things when you asked for one. But every comedian is whiny and angry about right. what they haven't gotten to do. So uh, when you're trying not to be whiny and angry, I ask all of my guests uh, a couple of questions to kind of round out the, the show. Uh, what is you, you mentioned getting a lot of great advice from listening to Kathy Griffin's WTF episode. More recently, though, what's the last kind of great inspirational words of wisdom you've received? Okay. I think any comic, particularly any female or gay comic, who isn't listening to the Jackie and Laurie show on... Uh, which just started. Which just started. But it's it is... Jackie Cation and Laurie Kilmartin. Fucking icons. Bitches who have collectively been doing this 60 years. Who are the sharpest comics I know because they never got rich enough to go soft. You know? Right. Um, like... Listening to their podcast is just wonderful, and I'm so glad that I get it. I tweeted something about, like, I'm so glad that I get this because I get to, like, check in with the two of you without having to schedule a lunch. <laughs> and Jackie was like, let's still schedule a lunch. And then I got to hang out with Jackie, which is the best. And it was one of those weird moments of being like, mentorship in comedy is strange. And I think I was scarred by being in San Francisco and having – more established comics see comics who reminded them of themselves and be mentory with them and not really having anybody in that position for me uh, and feeling <laughs> self-conscious about it. And it was while at lunch with Jackie, just like a, a week ago, I had to remind myself, oh, this is a person who I can ask advi for advice. This mm -hmm. is somebody who I have access to. I need to take advantage of that. But would you like to hear a glorious story? Of, uh, of good advice and wisdom. Story time, story time. Okay, so this was March of last year, mm -hmm. and I had submitted for the Comedy Central roast and was like, I wanted that job so bad. I was excited for it, and I had another job. <laughs> I had Billy on the street waiting for me in mm -hmm. New York, but I was like, if I get this job, I won't have to move. It'll pay more money. And... In my head, it would have been more prestigious. 
And I didn't get the job, and I was mopey, and I went to New York, and I was talking to Karen Kilgariff on the phone. Uh, and Karen Kilgariff uh, is a wonderful, wonderful mentor and full of guidance and wisdom. And I was whining at her. Mm-hmm. And she said, Guy, you've convinced yourself that that job at Comedy Central is comedy writer's heaven. But it's not. Billy on the street is comedy writer's heaven. <laughs> Do that. Be there. Mm-hmm. You're there. Do that. Uh, and the whole rest of the time I was there, as I just wrote the things I most wanted to write, like, ju- like it was... The raw pleasure of that show is enormous. Like, being in that room with Billy laughing at these things mm. and saying this show is for no one uh, <laughs> and really just, you know, eh, embracing the magic of this show that cares so deeply about Academy Award nominees from the mid-'80s, um, but also sports figures, but also everything. Like, right. it really just has this... <laughs> like this finger on on pop culture and that we all of us in that writer's room were contributing everything we had and that he was loving it and that we were enjoying each other so much uh, and then you see it on the show and it's just a delight and something that I am so proud to have worked on um, and and that is nice like that is is really lovely and you know you, you can't expect that from any other job that like just your whims, like your basest whims. One time we were in, we were in a meeting and we were having a conversation about something else, and they were talking about Justin Timberlake, and I was like, "Oh, we have to have a game that is will his wife write a cookbook, where we just list <laughs> celebrities," and it was and being in a room of people who understand mm-hmm. at their gut which celebrities' wives will and won't have a cookbook. Jake Fogelnest, I believe, said, (laughs) the money for Jessica Biel's healthy, like, light and healthy cookbook is already in a trust account at Simon & Schuster. (laughs) It's like, yes. May I spend the rest of my uh, life around such people? Well, God willing. God willing, yeah. And on the flip side, if someone comes up to you asking you to be a wise, sage mentor... What's the first thing you tell this person? Sean, you clearly have not spent enough time around me because one of the things that is most known about me in stand-up comedy is that I am a lactating bosom of advice and concern. (laughs) Um, So it will usually just be get up. Get up as much as you can. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll never do as much or as good writing as you do now when you love it most. So love it as much as you can. Um, and if you don't like it, then you probably shouldn't be doing this, but you should because it's a, a great thing to do. And I say that. Um, and then if they are uh, a little homosexual or a little trans person who is mm-hmm. starting at this, I always tell them, I am here for you. If you ever have anything you want to say, if you ever have anything that you have questions about or concerns, if you need to if something bad happens at an open mic and you need to talk to somebody, I am here for you, and Domian and Gabe Liedman treat them like they are here for you. Because we did not have people like that for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I, certainly for myself, and I'm also throwing uh, colleagues under the bus of this, <laughs> like 
those children need to understand that um, we are here for them, and it's also my job to take care of girls. But I don't give them I don't give them the same blankets. Hey, anytime. Well, Guy Brown. It's just implicit with women, and they know to take advantage of it. Well, as a as a straight white male comedy journalist, yes. I thank you for being here for me. <laughs> always, Sean. <laughs> always. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first.